Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, history heroes, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime BFFs take whining to a whole new level and talk about women from history you probably have never heard of. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yay. This is... The first time we've been able to record in quite some time where, one, we're not on a strict timeline because no one else is using the studio in Kelly's house. Yep. And two, it's not a fucking weeknight. Woohoo! Saturday, living for the weekend. (laughs) So I'm super excited and we are just... We don't have anything else going on today, and we are just riding high on the wine wave. (laughs) So yes. I'm it's the really first time excited. we've done this in a while. It's fun. So Kelly picked the wine today, but before she gets started, there was something I wanted to talk about. So on our last episode, Kelly covered Peggy Lee, the incredible singer who is most notably known for Lady and the Tramp. Mm-hmm. That's not true. No, not at all, but <laughs> we can go with it. You know what? You listened to that, and that's when it clicked with you. Oh, I know who she is. <laughs> Anyway, I was, uh, there was a song. Yeah, we talked about Fever. Yeah, so one of her most notable songs was Fever, and there was a song that popped into both me and Kelly's heads, but we're like, I don't think that's it. Well, I was watching TV, and one of the characters started singing Fever, and I'm like, that's the song I was thinking of. I wonder, I looked it up, it was the Peggy Lee song. So here's the thing, Google Peggy Lee Fever, because I know you have heard it, because it's like, you give me fever, baby, when you hold me tight. And I'm not going to sing anymore, because I don't want to get sued. It's Yeah, it's a good song. Oh, it's so good. And I've been like singing it to myself all week. (laughs) I know. Because once you said that, I went and looked it up too, and I was like, oh shit. But yeah, I heard it, and I'm like, oh my god. So yeah, really excited. And also today, really big deal, the Edinburgh Seven, who we covered in episode two, will all be awarded their posthumous degrees from Edinburgh University. Yep. And if you remember from episode two, if you're a loyal listener, and I know you are, they were the first women who were allowed to attend a British university. They were never awarded their degrees, though. And they medical, right? Medical yeah. University. Yeah. They all went for medical school and they were uh, harassed, attacked, sexually harassed, and not, generally like, shut like, out of their classes. They were generally like not even given teachers. Like they had to teach themselves yeah, college. A whole bunch of bullshit. <laughs> and here's the thing all of those women went on and did some really incredible things. But it it was such bullshit that they were allowed into university and the university basically said, well, they shouldn't have been allowed anyway. And we're not going to give them de- their degrees because we're a bunch of pricks. Basically. 150 years later, they will all be awarded their degrees. Yeah. And I mean. It's beautiful. A little too little too late, but it's. Still it's beautiful. great. Yeah, I'm I'm happy. I'm choosing to be very happy about so this. There's our, that's our shout out for today. Yeah, that's our uh, say their name and it's say their names. And unfortunately, I don't have them all written in front of me. I remember Sophia Blake and Judith Peachy, who was like, oh, well, I'd like to learn medicine if right, I, like, you know, oh, had I the guess. right education. And then she was like the smartest person in the whole fucking world. But anyway... That's awesome, and I'm so happy, and seriously, look it up in the news, because it's really incredible. Yeah, it's it's beautiful that they're doing that. 
I mean, they fucking better. Right. As we're at all, some point, I'm as we want to say know. on this show, they fucking better have. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you, Kelly, who picked our fabulous wine. All right. So. I don't remember if it was first episode or second episode. I think it was second because you picked the wine for our first episode and I picked the one for our second, which was the Edinburgh 7. So this is so appropriate. We're drinking another sweet bitch wine. Because we have to. I mean, come on. Because we are. Come on. (laughs) Um, This one is a smooth and fruity Pinot Grigio. Their description of it is a combination of fragrant almond and melon aromas with a fresh acidity, the flavors are interwoven with a ripe pear and juicy lemon. I have to say, when we drink white wine, it's usually, it's pretty dry, unless it's like a Moscato or something. Yeah, then it's just fruity, but this one has a good balance. I felt like I was biting into a grape, because it's really juicy, yeah. like, and really, like, wet. Yeah, I'm a fan. It's Which wet. sounds super dumb, because I get it, it's wine, but if you can say wine is dry, I can say it's wet. Yeah, no, it's... It's real. It's really good, and I can definitely. I don't know about the the almond, but I can definitely um, taste like the melon. I get like kind of a whiff of almond because you know almonds I guess it's are more like in the smell than yeah because almonds taste. are like a little bitter but more muted yeah and I I get that a little only because the wine is telling me I should get it yeah. like <laughs> I was gonna say like five minutes ago you wouldn't have said that no absolutely not. Well, cheers. Uh, cheers to the Edinburgh Seven finally the getting Edinburgh their degrees. Seven. It only took 150 years. <laughs> cheers. Clink. No, I've been like uh, downing this stuff. It's really good. It is. It's not as smooth as some we've had, but it's like, it's a little tart, but it's not, you know, overpoweringly tarty. Yeah, like that um, Prayers of Saints we drank last week. First of all, I really like that wine. Also, did you know it glows in the dark? No. I uh, I looked up the hashtag on Instagram, Prayers of Saints, and people were taking pictures of it glowing in the dark. And it was like, I'm going to have to do this now. We still have the bottle. Yep, we need upstairs. to check it out and take a picture. But uh, that was really like, we called it like the Sour Patch Kids of wine. Yeah. Because it was like sweet and then had that bitter finish. Yep. Liked it. But this is just... I want to be on the. I want to be tubing on the river and just chugging this. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, bottle in hand. I mean, maybe we'll bring a bottle because we're still planning our tubing trip. Woo woo tubing! Woo! I'm so excited. Yes, it's the one like summer thing Minnesota's really good at. It is, like so. Ninety percent of the time, even though we go to Wisconsin to do it. <laughs> We're such bad Minnesotans. No, we did that on purpose, though. Okay, yeah. so Kelly and I for. God, it's got to no, be like... The first time we went... In Minnesota. Yes. But the reason we went to the one in Wisconsin was because all the other rivers were too high and they all closed down. And that was the, they have a dam in on the one we go on in Wisconsin, so it never gets too high. So they were the only people open the day we wanted to go to. This is such a great nevertheless she persisted story. So Kelly and I, we started going tubing every summer like five years ago because this is before I even met Jared and we're going on four years. Yeah. So we went to a river in Minnesota. It was a ton of fun. And it was just the two of us. Some dude offered us pot and we politely like, declined. Minute, Like a minute onto the river. He was like, rules of the river, you guys want some? And we're like, no. He was just being polite. Like, yeah, he, he was. was. Just, hey, would you like some? No? Cool. Right. Like, there totally, was no harassment. 
Totally not Reagan era, just say no bullshit. <laughs> but that was a ton of fun. And then the next year we had it planned with a third friend, yep. right? And it had been raining a ton and we got the first beautiful day in ages. But unfortunately, all of the rivers in Minnesota were too high. All the tubing places were closed. And instead of just accepting that, Kelly and I were like, where else this. can we go? We're going tubing. This is happening. So we went to a place in Wisconsin. Yep. Our other friend dropped out. So we, we went just us. No, that was Liz. She didn't drop that out. That was the third year we went. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Because Cameo dropped out. Yeah. We love you, Cameo, if you're listening. But uh, but you and it was cool because you can go down the river as many times as you want. A bus picks you up at the end. I think this was um Apple River yeah, tubing. Apple river tubing or something. Yeah, they have like three or four that go on the same river. So yeah, really any of the ones that are on the Apple River. Hashtag sponsor us, Apple River tubing. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been going there ever since because it's nice to go down multiple times. And right, you usually know, we end up going twice because we get there early, fairly early in the morning. Not like ridiculously early, but no. fairly early. You know, I think we usually leave here about eight and it's like an hour and a half drive. Yeah. And it's it's a ton of fun. It's nice. And we've been going with like different friends every year. It's just kind of whoever can make it. But Kelly and I have been going tubing every summer for yeah. like five years. And that's like our one thing. We're like, we're going to do this every summer. Yes. No matter what. Of all of the things we say we're going to do every summer, this is the one thing we actually get done. Yeah. I'm proud of us. When are we going back to River Falls where we went to college? Well, probably it's been never. Like two years. <laughs> oh, oh no, honey. It's probably been more than that. My hair was like above my shoulders the last time we went and now it's down I to my tits. I think it was tits. that time we went tubing with Liz. No. <laughs> no, we went independently and then we went swimming in the St. Croix. See, she has such a better memory than I do. That's because Facebook reminds me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is a women's history podcast. Enough about us tubing. Kelly. It's our history. You're going to go first. All right. Today I'm covering Juana de Asbaje y Ramirez de Santillana. I love that. Yeah, I'm just going to go with Juana for Here, now Here's the thing. Long names, especially if we're not used to saying them in a different language, are difficult but worth saying. Yeah. I love the idea of like, no, honey, you will say my whole name. You will get winded saying it, but that's because it's fucking worth it. Right. It was funny, though, because I was rereading my notes just now and I was like, have I not, have I told this story before? No, it's just for me reading my notes that yep. many times. All right. So Juana was born on November 12th, 1965. She was the illegitimate daughter of a Spanish father and a Creole mother. Her mother, her maternal grandfather owned property in america mecca i don't know where that is i was just gonna ask you i think it's i didn't even write down what nationality she is so i don't want to be i think she's mexican so i think that's somewhere okay in but, mexico but south america but she's of mixed race yes okay so her grandfather owned property and that is where she spent her early li years living with her mother on his estate called panayoy oh my god pano panoea I'm just going to say, we have pre-gamed a little harder than we've been able to the past few episodes, so both so Kelly bad. and I are uh, uh, like uh, a sheet and a half to the wind, I'd say. <laughs> a sheet and a half. Yeah, just, we're not fully there, but- We're not we're, two sheets. We're only a sheet and a half. We're where At the we end of the episode, be. maybe we'll be two. We can still read words on our computers. <laughs> So Juana was a voracious reader in her early childhood, hiding in the Hacienda Chapel to read her grandfather's books from the adjoining library. She composed her first poem when she was eight years old, 
and by adolescence, she had comprehensively studied Greek logic and was teaching Latin to young children by her, at age 13. I have a quick question for you. Does she become a nun eventually? Yes. Did you find her on Rejected Princesses? I mean, yes. Is she like the phoenix? Yeah. Oh, my God. I almost covered her. <laughs> I almost covered her. I was so close. I was going to cover her for Pride Month because she was on Rejected Princesses under the LGBTQ oh, plus she? category. But there was nothing in the... And here's the thing. You in don't All have, of her history, they... They never they talked just said, about they it. They just said she didn't want to marry. That was yeah. like the extent of what they talked about. And it could have been that she was asexual. But it, it wasn't like a part of her story. And specifically no. for Pride Month, yeah. I want to cover people where that was an important part of their identity and their story. But I, I don't know her whole story. But I'm just like. You're like, this resonates. I'm feeling your brainwaves seep into me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to spoil anything. I just, I'm like imag- imagining the illustrations now because they're very pretty. Seriously, yeah, check out rejectedprincesses.com. Sponsor us. Hashtag sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> she also learned na- Nahuatl, which is an Aztec language spoken in uh, Central Mexico and re- also wrote short poems in that language. After her grandfather's death, um, which was also at age eight, um, Bummer. she was sent to live in Mexico City with her maternal aunt. It doesn't say what happened to her mother. I was going to say, like... I feel like the further back you go, kids just get passed around from, like, extended family member to extended family member. I'm like, where are the parents? (laughs) She longed to disguise herself as male so that she could go to university, but her family did not give her permission to do so. Oh, so she's a rebel. Yeah. She's straight up Spanish Belle. Right. She continued to study privately, though, and she was a harsh, harsh teacher to herself. She cut her hair thinking it should not be adorned with hair and naked of learning at the age of 16. This is just this hair is just taking up space. I need I need my head to be light so more right. knowledge can be absorbed through osmosis. <laughs> when she was 16, um she was presented to the court of the Viceroy Marquis de Mancera where she was admitted to the service of the Viceroy's wife, where she entertained nobles with her poetry and works of theater. When she was 17, the Viceroy assembled 40 members of the University of Mexico to to test her intelligence. They questioned her on topics such as mathematics, philosophy, literature, and history, and were astounded by her genius. A quote from the Viceroy after the events was, in the manner that a royal galleon might fend off the attacks of a few canoes. Explain that to me. So basically, I feel like I missed something. <laughs> she would be the galleon, which, you know, is big, has cannons. And yeah. The people asking her questions were the canoes, and she just destroyed them. Any question oh. they had, she answered, and she did really well. So she was a boss. Yeah. Hashtag lady boss. <laughs> at 17. Oh my God. At 17, what was I doing? I was in and out of the hospital for mental and physical issues and super hating myself. High school. Yeah, high school sucks. <laughs> a 10 year reunion. Oh my God. Don't. T- so many people in my high school yearbook, they put their senior quotes as like, see you in 10. And I was like, please, no, I don't. I don't want to see any of you people again. I don't know. I think I'm going to go to mine. I feel like, OK, if so, I'm still friends with a bunch of people from high school, like the cool people. And I feel like if we all got together and went to the reunion, that would be fun. I would never just go by myself. And that's kind of my worry. I will like, go with you. I'll be your date. 
Well, I think Justin wants to come. Well, fuck I'll just him. Bring both of you. <laughs> yeah. No. Like, this I'm, is my girlfriend and this is my husband. I'm woke as fuck. What have you done with your life? <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. This is my husband. This is my maid of honor. It's cool. <laughs> we all understand. It's fine. Mm-hmm. So apparently Juana was very, very beautiful. And she attracted a great deal of attention for her beauty. She received a lot of marriage proposals, and um, however, she turned them all down. She had no desire to marry and wished only to continue her studies. I imagine, because she was so fucking smart, anytime someone proposed, she asked them, like, an intellectual question, and none of them could answer it. And right, that was, like, her like, screening no, process. <laughs> so the only choice she thought she had and her logical path, which I kind of agree, at least in this time, was to become a nun. So she joined the convent. Because otherwise she would have to get married and then stop her intellectual pursuits to be a wife and mother. Yep. Because there's no having it all. But I'm sure her husband would still expect her to entertain with this wit that she has. Yeah. She he he brings her out so she can like say what two plus two is and they're like what a woman doing math and she's witchcraft so beautiful. witchcraft oh my god you can't be that beautiful and that intelligent this is insane right. ah. um so Juana entered the convent of the discalced Carmelites of Saint Joseph where she remained for a few months um and then in 1969 at the age of 21 she and en- um she entered the convent of the order of Saint Jerome where she would remain until her death. Um, the notes that I found said that the, the first convent she entered was just a little too strict. Like, they wouldn't give her the time to do her studies or anything like that. They were just, like, you were a tool for yeah, the convent. Exactly. You don't and get to was, be your own It was person. too much, so she went and she entered a different convent of a different order that was A better. little more chill. Yep. She lived very comfortably. Her cell was actually an apartment maintained by servants and slaves, and she had a huge personal library containing various scientific, mathematical, and musical instruments. It also contained works of art and some 4,000 books. Did you say this was in 1969, or was it 1869? Please tell me there were not slaves in 1969. 1669. Oh, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) I was like, I'm pretty sure it's farther back than that. I started making this face when you said 1969. I know you did. I was like, that's when we went to the goddamn moon. (laughs) (laughs) Also when the Stonewall Uprising happened. All this shit. 1969 was a big year. So um, from now on, I'm going to refer to her as Sorwana, which just means sister. Okay. She's a sister from this point on. If she became a doctor, we call her Dr. Wana. So Dr. Wana. Dr. Sor Wana. Dr. Sister Wana. Exactly. Here in her cell, she produced works of poetry, drama, and and prose, which were all published extensively. Sor Wana's enduring importance and literary success are partly attributable to her mastery of the full range of poetic forms and themes of the Spanish Golden Age, and her writings display intentiveness, wit, and a wide range of knowledge. She employed all of the poetic models of her day, including sonnets and romances, and she drew on a wide range of secular and non-secular sources. Unlimited by genre, she also wrote dramas, comedies, and scholarly works, especially unusual for a nun. 
I was going to say, because it doesn't sound like she joined the convent for religious reasons. Not really, no. Because there was nowhere else where she could pursue her intellectual interests without being hounded by dudes who wanted to fuck her. Right. And that's probably why she chose a convent that was a little more chill. Relax. Yeah. You know, because if she's writing non-secular work, a very strict convent would probably be like, yeah, no, you're not allowed to do that at all. Oh, yeah. No, that was like, um... Oh, fuck. My drunk brain is forgetting her name. The sexologist saint. Uh, saint something of Bergen. It was an H. Hildegard. Hildegard. Oh, my God. There we go. Together, our drunk brains can form sentences. And you know why? Because empowered women empower women, people. But she, but she was like the first one to write like a non-secular piece yeah. of music. It's huge. And it was like, whoa, what? No, but you're a nun, and that's all you can be. Yeah. And I get it. And luckily by this time, it doesn't, at least in this particular order, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. Well, and I get it because being a nun or a priest is like, you are I mean, that's your job. That's all your life. In. Yeah. Like, this is, you're married to God. Well, that's why even the fact that her cell, like, that she had slaves and servants and that all this stuff, because usually... A lot of times for nuns, it's you renounce your worldly pleasures. Oh, yeah. You know, you you might have a few personal items and stuff, but you don't get 4,000 books and paintings and all of this stuff. Right. So, yeah. That's super cool, though. I love, yeah, I love that she has the opportunity to kind of pursue her intellectual interests. Yeah, I love it. Go Sorwana. So Sorwana's most important plays include Brave and Clever Women. And her most famous poem, Ombres Nacios, which means foolish men, accuses men of behaving illogically by criticizing women. Her most significant poem, Primo Sueno, which is First Dream, which was published in 1692, is at once personal and universal, recounting the soul's quest for knowledge. I fucking love her. So I grew up being taught by nuns, and actually... All the nuns I had as teachers were super cool and they were like lots of fun. They weren't those stuffy, I'm going to beat you with a ruler nuns. Yeah. Actually, the only teacher I had that ever inflicted physical punishment on the students was not a nun, like not involved with the order at all. Not a nun, not a priest, not anything. But I love that she's free to make that social commentary. And here's the thing, like... Yeah, tell, saying that women are weaker and inherently shittier than men, that is illogical. Like, what are you talking right? about? Exactly. She was she was woke. She was woke as fuck for 1600s <laughs> being a nun. Jeez. Right? I know. Um, so besides the poems and plays she wrote, she also studied music, philosophy, and natural science. So she was like all over the place. And I mean, studying natural science, that probably was a big, huge, like... You work for the church. Why are you studying that type thing? She wrote the last word on evolution and signed it, Sister Juana. (laughs) No, seriously, a nun. (laughs) Um, Though she was very accomplished, Sor Juana was the subject of criticism by her political and religious superiors. When her friends, the Viceroy and his wife who apparently it did say was the subject of a series of her love poems, but I couldn't like, the one thing I saw that said that, it was, like, literally, like, a little cliff note. Like, there was no, like, more in-depthness to it. So that's yeah. why I only, I'm including it here as a cliff note. Like, Well, it's hard when we're doing this research because 
you see something that's only mentioned in one place and you're like, well, why isn't it mentioned anywhere else? Yeah. It's not explained and in that's this why a lot place. of times I'll mention it yeah. in my stories, but I'll be like, I only found it in one place. I feel like you do a good job with that and I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate I you. I try. I appreciate you too. Aw, love you. So when the Viceroy and his wife left Mexico in 1688, um, Sorwana lost much, much of her protection that she had from them because obviously being a Viceroy, you know, that's fairly high up you know he's in a political place of power where he can shield her with his influence yeah bummer yeah so in 1690 a letter a letter of hers which criticized a well a well-known jesuit sermon was published without her permission by a person using the pseudonym sor philotia de la cruz Included with her letter was a le- was included with her letter was a letter by Sor Felito, who was actually the bishop of Pueblo, Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz, um, who is known to like have had like almost a rivalry with the bishop from her order. So like he he did it on purpose. He did it okay. intentionally to get her in trouble. He's like being a dick. Yeah. Okay, so he's publishing. Because he, he published. She so she criti- criticized a popular person's sermon. Okay, and he published it without her permission or knowledge. Oh, super cool! Because yeah, let's just ignore women's consent on what they can right. ha- put out in the world. Fuck you, dude. Um. So his letter about her criticizing a sermon criticized her. For her comments and for a lack of serious religious content in her poems. I mean, here's the thing. She's not in this because she's particularly religious. Like, maybe she is, but this was the only place she could pursue her intellectual interests. Right. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, this is what blows me about organized religion sometimes. There is, I, like, if you're religious, if you have faith, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we are unable to look inward and be like, hey, maybe this one thing we're doing or this one thing we're preaching isn't actually healthy. Right? Like, like there's no ability to criticize or look inward. It's like, nope, this is the way it is. It has to yeah, be good. Yeah, this is how it has to be. Yeah. And we don't grow that way. Would no. you tell your child that every single thing they do is wonderful? Not when they're shoving a kid to the ground. You correct that kind of behavior. Right. And you, you have to be willing to, to change. Change is how we grow as a civilization and as people. Yeah. If we don't change, we're literally just doing the same thing over and over again. Welcome to our religious criticism podcast. I'm Emily. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Kelly. Let's get into it. Oh, my God. But no, that's something that's already always bothered me. It's like, no, it's either this way or no way. Like, there's no looking inward or growth. recently, there's a lot of religions that are embracing change, and it's great. Like, and we're not criticizing one religion or another. We're just saying, as a whole, it's even not just religions. Religions, government... Like a lot of things, there's there's a this is how it is, and we can't change it, even though we can. Yeah, no, it's no, this is the way it's always been. Well, the way it's always been hasn't worked for a lot of fucking people, so right. maybe we should look at it. Did you hear about those? Um, I think they were Methodists, so there were a bunch of young people who were getting confirmed into the Methodist church, but instead of going through with it, they all gave speeches on how they were 
uncomfortable with the way the Methodist church had like doubled down on not being open to LGBTQ plus people. So they were like, we were going to join the church, but... But we don't want to send the message that this kind of behavior is okay. And we 100% don't agree with the exclusion of LGBTQ plus people. And we think it's bullshit. So we're going to use this opportunity to tell you it's bullshit. Yeah, that's amazing. That's incredible. Like, I... I wish I was that brave because when I got confirmed, I did it because my mom wanted me to. And I remember talking to a priest and being Same. like, so this whole like being against gay marriage thing, that's kind of bullshit, right? Like, come on. Yeah. But I still went through I mean, with and it. At least that's changing now, at least in Catholicism. Because people are fighting for it. Exactly. Amen. Okay, back to my story. I'm so sorry. We went off on a whole tangent. <laughs> um. So he criticized... The poems and her serious lack of religious content. Okay. Yes. Her reply is now the famous Resputa a Sorfilito, which I didn't find a translation for. I probably could have Googled it. Um, and it has been hailed as the first feminist manifesto, defending, among other things, a women's right to education. Her fervent, um, her ferventness in it was the subject of fur- further criticism, and the archbishop and others demanded that she give up any non-religious books or studies. Oh, fuck. She continued to publish non-religious works, among them several villain villanciscos, which is a poetic form typically sung as a religious devotional for feasts of the Catholic calendar. Okay. About St. Catherine of Alexandra, written in a more feminist than religious tone. All right, the next section I called Two Paths, question mark. Oh, no. That well, sounds Because I ominous. read two different ways, how, like, how people say what happened slash how they feel it happened. Okay. Like, because some people, there's the side that say um, that she was forced to give up all her stuff and, like, her books were burned and all this stuff. And then some other places say that she willingly sold them and then gave the alms to the poor so well you'll you'll see okay i'll make i'll save my judgments until after you tell me the story right controversies surrounding sorwana's writing and pressure from those around her including her confessor nunez de miranda which i think confessor at that time is like the priest of the order i was gonna say we covered that in hildegard of bingen the confessor was um someone who took confessions yeah but he he was like a higher up yeah, okay. religious figure um so this this is the one that says resulted in her forced abjuration like so she had to be done um during this time sorwana was required was required to sell her books as well as all musical and scientific instruments apparently she then responded by devoting herself to a rigorous penance and giving up all studies and writing that just seems really hard for me to believe well, because she didn't seem religious until she went into the order, and we know why she went in. So the idea that she was like, oh, no, you're right. I pissed off God. I right. need to, like, repent. No, she was pursuing her intellectual interests the right. whole time. So and that seems I know, a little fishy. Um, Rejected Princesses says that she signed a doc, uh, like a document, rum. Rum? God, that sounds um, good sorry. right now. Um, <laughs> like repenting and like repealing all her works and that she signed it in blood i couldn't find any of his his references because they were all like books and i'm like i'm not gonna buy a book like sorry guys yeah i love our podcast 
But I'm like, I don't have time to do that. Send us the book. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Email um, it to us at wantingaboutherstory at gmail.com. So yeah, basically the whole thing was, one way or another, she ended up void of all her possessions and not able to write anymore or learn. So I have what I feel like ha- I think happened in my head. I just feel like it's a more convenient narrative for the church to say, oh, she saw the error of her and ways she repented. Yeah, exactly. and she thinks we're totally right and she did all this of her free will. That sounds pretty fishy versus she was forced to do all this because it fit into what we wanted. Yeah, there there was a specific one I really, really liked. Let's see if I can find the notes for that. Because I kind of like split my notes at this point. Well, I, if we're getting ahead of what you have written down, don't like scroll around for me (laughs) no i wanted to read it in this section and it was so this is one that i found that it's it's like one person's take on like their how they've read sorwana's story and i think it's really it's kind of long but i'll kind of sum it up as i go um so this person says um sorwana's decision to give up her worldly possessions and dedicate herself to charity sealed her saintly reputation it was a turning point in her life and was presented by so many as persecution and was integral to the image that Sorwana herself wished to portray. Within her lifetime, two of the three volumes of her complete works were published, and she edited a lot of them herself. 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 Um, the final installment was published around five years after her death and was reprinted several times. Um, and each volume appears to present a carefully constructed image of Sorwana, tracing her career from court favorite to nun to saintly exemplar, with her works reflecting this progression. Um, within the last volume is her bi- is a biography that she wrote, and it draws upon the well-established narrative of a saint who gained fame and fortune and decided to give it all up for Christ. Her profession of faith, which is in her biography, um, which has been used as evidence of her persecution, was rather tame in comparison with those of other nuns. However, this was key in demonstrating her pious transformation and presenting herself as worthy of sainthood. However, the fascinating thing is that, to a certain extent, this narrative seems to be crea- been created by Sorwana herself. Um, her agency in deciding how her work and image were presented should not be underestimated. Few writers in the early modern period, both men and women, had a privilege to be able to portray themselves the way they wanted. And many did not live to see their writings in print. You know, a lot of times you hear, oh, all of his works were published after he died. Like, no, she actually got published during her lifetime. Right. And she was able to take control of the narrative. Exactly. That's fucking awesome. Um, The fact that she influenced the creation of her posthumous biography demonstrates that far from being broken down and put in her place, she was continuing to shape her own image from beyond the grave. I love that. It's spooky. So this, this is a direct quote from the thing I read. It says, Yet despite this, people, including scholars, have preferred to regurgitate the same old cliched narrative of female victimhood about someone who is actually incredibly successful. It seems that we must believe that a woman suffered in order for her to be awarded iconic status. But this means we are killing heroines rather than celebrating their achievements. Why is the only acceptable strong female character one who has been recast as a victim? That is fucking incredible. I know, I read that and I'm like, ooh. Like, can we unpack that for a second? Because so many of the women we cover, 
they're shit on by the patriarchy. They're shit on by heteronormative standards. Yep. And that's part of their story. That's such an integral part of their story is that they have suffered be- just for being women. Right. But she fucking took control. Yep. But and then afterward, people are like, no, look, she gave it all up. And it's like, oh, no. poor lady. No, 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 no. Like, she, she was awesome in her own right. She doesn't need to be a victim. Yeah. God. I I know I read that and I'm like, this is going in my notes. <laughs> that is so cool. Like, and like I said, a lot of the women we cover, part of their story is that they've been victimized. But you I know? love that's why we're covering them. Like, I feel like we're kind of taking that back. We're making them less victimized and more like hey this person was a hero yeah she faced all this shit but this is what she got done right right god that's i have i have no words that's That's just fucking amazing and that's something that i feel like i'm gonna stick with whenever i hear about women in history yeah i know i read that i was like oh gives me chills changing the history game bitches um this 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 author um, believed that per- perhaps her downfall um, was due to the fact that she was a Mexican rebelling against the Spanish authorities, so it could have been a political move. I feel like it's a little bit of column A, column B, and column probably. C. It's like, probably a little a, bit of everything. There's a lot of factors involved, and that's why we can't just say, oh, it's because she's a woman. Exactly. Well, there's a lot of shit going on here. Um. In nineteen, in sixteen, nineteen, in sixteen ninety five, a plague hit the convent, and on April seventeenth, after tending to, to her fellow sisters, Sorwana died from the disease at the age of forty four. I thought it said five, so I had to double check. However, even though she gave up all the writing she had at the convent, the vicerine, so the the viceroy's wife, okay, um, had retained much of her works. Um, however, a lot of the writing that she sold off or got taken from her um, was scattered around Mexico by the Mexican Revolution. Doing the jerk off hand motion. Yeah. I mean, a lo- I think a lot of it by see. this point has been recovered, but that's still really, really sad. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing that happens in every historical story. You know, shit gets lost. It gets buried. At least this time it didn't get like burned and destroyed and you know like a lot of the other women we cover yeah i mean enough of it was preserved where we Which can understand amazing. her impacts yeah so legacy you um there's a vast amount of scholarly literature on sorwana in spanish english french german and many other languages there's a ton of tv shows telenovelas like so i'm not gonna cover all that there's a shit ton of stuff <laughs> look it <laughs> look up look it up um, trust in mother google the works that are still around um most of them if not all of them have been translated um to you know english french german like the, the key major languages apparently um in 1997 penguin classics paperback published poems protest and a dream of hers in english and that was like a major like the one of the first major of her works published in English. Wait, was it called Poem, Protests, and a Dream? Or yeah. was it they published a poem, they published a protest, no. and they published Poems, one of her protests dreams? Poems, Protests, and a Dream. So, like, a dr- the Dream was, like, one of her major works. So I'm guessing it was a compilation of her poems, you know, maybe that feminist manifesto, and then the Dream. Yeah. And okay. it says, yeah, which includes her response to authorities censuring her. Love it. I just love that Penguin Classics did it. Go Penguins. 
feminist animal of the year. (laughs) A lot of people argue the most notable book written about her um, was written by Nobel Prize laureate Octavio Paz in Spanish and then translated into English. It was called Sor Juana or the Traps of Faith. Ooh, that's very compelling. A very valuable feminist analyst of Sorwana's life and work is found in The Answer slash La Respusta by Sorwana Ines de la Cruz by Alexa Aranal, a Sorwana scholar who is recognized among feminists who changed America and Amanda Powell, a poet and translator. Empower um, women, empower women. One more I'd like to touch on is um, Dr. Teresa Uger wrote her master's and doctoral thesis on Sorwana. She wrote the book called Sorwana Ines de la Cruz, Feminist Reconstruction Biography and Text. Um, she discusses Sorwana's life through a feminist lens and analyzes her the criticism and then Al Sueño. And then, yeah, so that one's apparently supposed to be really good. And it's very, you know, it's a different view on Sorwana's life. Um, her former cloister that she lived in is now a center for higher education. Really? I think under her name. And her image adorns Mexican currency, specifically the thousand peso coin and the 200 peso bill. That's fucking awesome. So during, re- this, this is called historical memories. During the renovations to the cloister that she lived in in the 1970s, Bones were found that were believed to possibly be those of Sorwana. Um, at the same time, a medallion similar to the one depicted in the portraits of Sorwana was found. The medallion was kept by Margarita Lopez Portillo, the sister of the president of Mexico at the time. During the tercentennial of Sorwana's death in 1995, a member of the Mexican Congress called Margarita to return the medallion, which she said she had taken for safekeeping. Okay. She, she did return it to Congress. And on November 14th, 1995, they held an event and a description of the, con- and the description of the controversy was reported in the New York Times. That's insane. So they think they found her bones yep. in the walls of this convent. They found what was allegedly her medal, and the president's sister's like, I'll just hang on yep. to this. Um, whether or not the medallion is Sorwana's, the incident sparked discussion about Sorwana and abuse of official power in Mexico. I mean. Um, she had a, a magnificent statue of her raised, and that's one of the reasons she's called the Phoenix of Mexico, is because she just keeps coming back. Like, yeah. They tried to shut her down by the, the guy... Um, publishing her works without her knowledge and she's like fine you know you want to you know badmouth me here's i'll badmouth you back and here's more you, you want know. some of this you want some of this you know bring it bitch. so yeah they call her the phoenix of mexico that's awesome um, her name is also inscribed in a gold wall of honor at the mexican congress building oh i think so. i found the first half of our episode title the phoenix of mexico motherfuckers no i'm not gonna add that part <laughs> maybe <laughs> MFers. <laughs> <laughs> the Phoenix of Mexico, MFers. Her that, street so heroes. That is Sorwana. That is so cool. I'm so glad you did that story because I thought about doing it and it just it wasn't what I was looking for that yeah. week. Oh, no, I get it. But I'm so happy I got to learn more about that. Well, I'm glad to be of service. That's awesome. And you know what blows my mind is like any person who's an intellectual like that is just like so intelligent and learning for the sake of knowledge and better understanding, I think they should just get access to 
every library they want, right? every like, research just do material. Whatever you want. Let them do their thing because they can probably guide that shit better than anyone could tell them to. Right. And so the fact that anyone was bringing her down for whatever reason, I'm like, you screwed us. You screwed us as humanity. <laughs> She probably would have found the cure for cancer, and we would all be just, just let her be living fun and fancy free. But you fucked us, right? It would be interesting that yeah, some of these scholars, men and women, that have been you know persecuted over the years for one thing or another. Like, what if we just let them do their thing? Like, I bet shit would be so different. Guys, I have this. We probably would already have artificial intelligence. We wouldn't have to work and we could just be lazy and it would be awesome. I have this incredible proposal. What if we let the smartest people in the world who aren't assholes just do their thing? Right. What? Where would we be? But he's Jewish. I don't give a shit. Cancer doesn't care. Right. As long I- as he's not like a racist asshole. It's fine. I was going to say, eugenics is completely removed from this scenario. Like, we're not talking about that shit. That should go without saying, but anyway. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Cheers to Sorwana. Clink. I think that's the second religious figure we've covered. Kelly's chugging her drink. Give her a second. Yeah, because the only other one I can think of is the nu- the person that was a nun just to break out her lesbian lover and then burn the convent. Well, Hildegard of Bingen. No, I'm saying. Same. Oh yeah, the other the person I'm thinking outside of those two was yep. like was a nun for like a week and then think, burned the convent. I don't think we'll count the convent <laughs> burning fake nun. Oh, I love that. She was amazing. See, here's the thing. That was an incredible story. I don't think she counts as her. No, I don't think figure. so. Oh my god. Okay, uh, so today I am covering Annie Kopchowski, a.k.a. Annie Londonderry, a.k.a. the bike babe, a.k.a. the spokeswoman, Jesse. Jesse. Normally for my women, I can't think of cool nicknames. This chick had like 80 fucking names. There was the, like, the one that I, the, I had like the something the sexer of the stars or whatever her name like nickname was and i'm like oh oh what was it like um because it was uh see i can't think of it either it's my wine addled brain oh my god yeah she was the writer who had the the greatest women of the 20th century yeah hold on hold on i'm pulling it up um the greatest star fucker ever that's right i didn't use that for the episode title though because i was like that might be a little much yeah okay so I'm covering Annie Kopchowski. Annie, like most unassuming heroines, came from humble beginnings. She was born in Latvia in 1870, the third of five children. That's a whole hand five. High five. Goddamn. <laughs> in 1875, when she was five years old, she immigrated to the United States with her family. Immigrants, they get the job done. Alexander Hamilton. I can't I can't we, let it go. We both didn't just break out and dance, not at all. No, no, and it wasn't the saddest white girl dancing you've ever seen. Cuz we're sitting down and, you know, a bottle in. Yes. 
They settled in a tenement in Boston. And in case you didn't know, tenements were small, dirty, crowded, and generally terrible places to live. Yeah, sometimes they shovel like multiple families into one unit. And oh, it was, yeah. It was bad. Imagine the worst studio apartment you've ever had and imagine it. With imagine like sharing it people. with 12 other families and none of you speak the same language. Yeah. Have fun. I would love, there's a tenement museum in New York and That'd I would love to go it see it. on our tour. It'll be on our feminist tour. Woo woo. Woo woo. We should do that like next summer. We should just like take a week off and be like, this is where we're going. You're hearing it for the first time. Kelly and Emily's feminist tour next summer. One of the many things we talk about doing that we're never going to fucking do. <laughs> we should though. I'm going to. I'll do it without you, damn it. Okay. I think we should do. Okay. So there's um there's a herstory tour in D.C., what 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 is it called? We follow them on Instagram. A tour of her own. Oh, I'm like, which one? Okay, so there's there's a tour in DC called a tour of her own, and it's basically a women's history tour, and it's a playoff of a room of her own, which I fucking love because that's such a good piece. And I would love to take that with you. And I've been wanting to go to DC. There we go. I would love to go with you, and we can just we like take selfies in front of everything. Yeah, we'll, we'll carry our wine glasses. Yeah. <laughs> There's water. It's okay. We're not getting drunk in public. We're being classy. Yeah, don't, don't worry. Ossifer, this is grape juice. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's, 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 it's my morning grape juice. It's yeah, fine. yeah. It's it's my vegetables for the day. It's fine. I'm pretty sure grapes are a fruit. <laughs> That's my vegetables. God damn it. I think that officer would be like, uh, no. I am a paragraph and a half in, and this is already just unsalvageable. Two two sheets now. Oh my God. Okay. Continue. Uh, So she's living in a tenement. It's in a place like this where Annie grew up with with her three siblings. I thought she had four siblings. Well, they're not born yet. I thought she was like the fifth child. No, she's the third of five. Oh. Or no, wait, fuck. Did I fuck this up? Okay, she grew up there with her big-ass family. Yeah, (laughs) in a tiny apartment. Got it. In 1887, when Annie was 17, her father died, followed by her mother two months later because tragedy has no sense of timing. I mean, at least she was 17 at the time, but still, like, it's either her or her older siblings that now have to look after the younger ones. I was going to say, I am 28 years old, and if one of my parents died... Oh, God, my world would unravel. I would just curl up in a ball and die. That's that's just be it. I'm done. Uh, so Annie's oldest sister was already off and married, so she and her 20-year-old brother, Bennett, were left to take care of their two younger siblings, Jacob, 10, and Rosa, 8. So, yeah. Yeah. She's suddenly a mom at 17, co-parenting with her brother. Who's not much older than her. No. <laughs> 20 years old. He's not even old, to, old enough to drink, let alone take care of kids. Right. Although maybe in the 1800s he was. I don't know. Whatever. Continue. The following year, Annie married peddler Simon Kopchowski, and they lived in the same tenement she grew up in, along with Bennett and her two younger siblings. So there are... So basically, the new guy just joined their yes. tiny apartment. Yeah, okay. the husband moved in. So there's a fuck ton of people living in this crappy little tenement. Mm, really, it's the same number. Actually, it's still one less. Until Annie and Simon had three children, Bertha, Libby, and Simon Jr. Gross detail. 
Annie's brother, Bennett, who, remember, was 20, ended up marrying her oldest daughter, Bertha, and they had two kids. I'm sure it wasn't like when she was two, so he was old, but like, he is 20 at a minimum. Yeah, there's at least a 20-year age gap. When this girl is born, what is this? And it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but I read that and I'm like, stop, please, just stop. That's, that's super weird. It's gross. Well, it's gr- it's not, I guess I don't find it like that gross. I guess it is gross. It's like cousin, marrying your cousin. Yeah, essentially it's marrying your cousin because it's marrying your uncle. It's marrying your niece. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like the whole position of authority thing. Like, it's like, okay, you lived with her. Did you like groom her to marry her the entire time she was growing up? You changed her fucking nappies. Like, I know you're trying to make this okay because it's the 1800s, but it's gross. No, I just like fully think it through. It is gross. Yeah, the more you think about it, the worse it gets. I feel like I need another bottle of wine. Yes, we'll get there. It's okay. Okay, so that's a detail that's completely irrelevant to the rest of the story, but... She just wanted to gross us all Super out. gross. Yeah. Thanks. Annie made a living selling advertising space for Boston newspapers while her husband studied the Torah and peddled his wares, because they're both Jewish. So what, what are his wares? I don't know. I don't care. This isn't about him. <laughs> Simon, honey, you're not important here. We're not talking about you. I don't know what they were, so you can just use your imagination. I put that in my notes. <laughs> he peddled. He peddled marital aids from a cart that he ha- had outside uh, business buildings. Sounds appropriate. People would just stop by on their lunch break to pick up dildos. I'm sure women back then needed them. Hysteria. It's a real problem. Right? That's why they were invented. Yep. All right. Continue. The only good thing to come out of hysteria. Vibrators. <laughs> now, during this time, bicycling was all the rage. It wasn't just a hipster thing. Humanity had advanced beyond the insane penny farthing and was embracing the more Wait, traditional style. Do you know those bicycles with the giant front wheel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that what they're called? And the tiny back wheel. Those I'm sure are penny somewhere farthings. in my brain I knew that, but you said it and I was like, what? I was going to say, everyone knows what a pe- penny farthing is. They just don't know the name that, of it. That's okay. the name. So they're going to regular bicycles. AKA death cycles. Because how do you get off of that thing without breaking your neck? Oh, okay, yeah. A penny farthing, it's a death cycle. I yes. thought you were saying like modern bicycles. I was like, what? So they had advanced from the penny farthing to the more traditional style that we know today. Bicycles offered simple, independent transportation to women in particular because, you know, they're tied to their husbands. They also helped pave the way for less restrictive clothing for women and even, le gasp, pants. I love that you knew. Fucking yes. Pants permits. They did still have to have pants permits, though. You don't need a license to ride that bike, but you need a license to wear pants while riding that bike. See, here's my question. Was it like, you can wear pants as long as you're on a bike, and then you must get off the bike. when you, Whenever you get to your destination, you must change. <laughs> they had, like, little women's changing stations outside Everywhere. of every store so they could change into their appropriate skirts. Yeah. We're making this up. Yeah. But you know it's not probably that far off. <laughs> you know someone did it somewhere. Naturally, this made bikes very controversial when women were riding them, at least. One writer for the Sunday Herald in 1891 wrote, quote, 
I think the most vicious thing I ever saw in all my life is a woman on a bicycle. And Washington is full of them. I'm sorry. Vicious. Vicious. Is this a time before murder and rape was invented? Like, I'm like, why would a woman on a bike look vicious? I mean, like, maybe if you're like, man, you look good and that kind of vicious. Like, but I love that. I'm going to describe beautiful women that way. Instead of honey, you're fierce. Honey, you're vicious. You're fucking vicious. And I love it here. Whining about herstory, making women's herstory trendsetters for the ages hashtag vicious (laughs) but seriously like this is the most disgusting thing he's ever seen Yeah, like that's terrible and i'm not done with a quote oh jesus he continues to say i had thought that cigarette smoking was the worst thing a woman could do but i have changed my mind because women riding bikes is more sinister than inhaling cancer yeah it is Dudes, get your priorities straight, please. Come on. I know. That's God. terrible. He probably was under, you know, the cigarette company's thumb. Oh, no. He was just pushing cigarettes. Yeah. He's like, just like don't let women ride bikes. Make them smoke more. <laughs> Hashtag Marlboro. No, no, <laughs> no. Don't sponsor us. Please, no. <laughs> we don't want it. So it was shit like this and more that made the bet between two Boston men so crazy. In 1894, the two men bet $20,000 that no woman could travel around the world on a bicycle in 15 months. Or maybe the bet was made up by Annie. No one fucking knows. It was not, it wasn't uncommon for people to fake wages to get money for doing stunts. So there is this bet. Of $20,000 that a woman cannot bike around the world in 15 months. The legend is that two rich Bostonians who have never been named or identified made the bet. It's been theorized that maybe Annie made it up because she's like a self-promoter. I think it was probably, uh, and I'll get into this, Colonel Alan Pope who made the bikes that Annie ended up riding. So we're going to get into that. Annie, guess what? What? How this story ends, and what Annie does. Well, we'll. I will tell the whole story. You will know everything I know. So Annie's own great grandnephew, who wrote a book documenting her journey, flat out said that the bet was made up to sensationalize her trip. It's possible that Colonel Albert Pope, the owner of the manufacturing company that produced Columbia bicycles, set the whole thing up to promote his bikes. So that's the kind of bike she rode on her trip. Either way. If Annie was successful, she would win $10,000, which is almost $300,000 in today's money. Excuse me while I fan myself and imagine all of the cool things I would buy with that money. That would just go toward my... Our DC trip. Yeah. Student loans, pay off my house, and then... Medical bills. Go somewhere. All the things millennials dream of doing with their money. (laughs) Right. So no one knows why Annie was chosen. Actually, the fact that she was a Jewish woman in a time where anti-Semitism ran rampant makes it even crazier that she was chosen. They just assumed she would die on the way. Also, did I mention she had never ridden a bike until a few days before her journey? Nice. So literally, the worst person in the world to pick for this for both like political and practical reasons was chosen to ride around the world in 15 months. But Annie was chosen by the grace of God. Whatever the reason, on June 25th, which is one of my best friend's birthdays, 
and the day I was researching this. So I genuinely think God wanted me to do this story. In 1894, the married mother of three set out on her journey from Boston amidst a crowd of 500 onlookers. Clad in a dress, she rode a 42-pound Ladies' Columbia bicycle that had a placard attached advertising Londonderry Lithia Springwater, for which she was paid $100. And as part of this ad deal, Annie also agreed to go by Annie Londonderry. This also concealed her identity as a Jew because anti-Semitism sucks. So. Yeah. It was what it was. In September, Annie arrived in Chicago. So she left in June and it took her until September to get to Chicago. And she covered about 985 miles During her journey, she lost over 20 pounds. Understandably, Annie almost called it quits on the whole thing. This may have been partly due to the fact that she was riding a bike that weighed almost 50 goddamn pounds. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I can pick up my bike with one hand. Yeah. I can't pick up 50 pounds with one hand. I will die. (laughs) That's how I'm going to go. But... Like, having to deal with that every day would suck. Yeah. I mean, that thing doesn't move. And she's, I think I mentioned this later in my notes. She starts out on this journey penniless. And she, like, promotes herself to raise capital to, like, stay in, uh, like, biker and lodges and yeah. stuff like that. Um, So she traded in that behemoth of a bike for a men's bike that weighed half as much. Yes, the men's bikes only weighed about 20-something pounds. Because where do women have to go in such a hurry? That's funny. Was it still a Columbia? I don't know. The bike was sponsored by a local company called Sterling Cycle Works and had no brakes. What? Yay! Uh, I think I'd keep the 50-pound bike. Here's the thing. I uh, I rode a bike. The bike I still own, and the brakes are terrible. My was, brakes squeak. And I was going down this hill, and there was a sharp right-hand turn. And so I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to make the turn going as fast as I am because the brakes on that sharp of an incline are useless. And there was kind of a field in front of me. So I was like, I'll just turn around in the field. Well, I uh, I failed to notice the ditch in my Before front. the field? <laughs> yeah. So my front wheel went in. I was launched off of my bike, got a black eye because I landed on my left eye and my left shoulder. And I actually had to get physical therapy because I landed on my shoulder so hard I couldn't mm. like lift it up. I couldn't lift oh, up my honey. arm. Yeah. So that's what happens when you have a bike with no brakes. Yeah. What the fuck? And she's making it around the whole goddamn world. Yeah, that's dangerous. So uh, along with switching her bike, she also switched to wearing bloomers and later a men's riding suit because nice. this Comfort. isn't a double mint commercial. Like we need pants to ride bikes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Knowing that she wouldn't make it to San Francisco before winter and the inevitable Midwestern snowfall, thanks, Minnesota, Annie left Chicago and began riding back to east, riding back east to New York. She only had 11 months left to complete her journey. So she's made it halfway across the country about and she has to double the fuck back. Why? Well, because she wouldn't so have made it. So she could go like the opposite way around the world, basically? Well, because so she's in Chicago. It's September. Winter is coming. I know. <laughs> so she so she has to go back because there's no way she's going to make it to the West Coast so she, in time. So she go backwards? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
When she arrived in New York in November, she hopped on a ship that took her to France. As soon as she landed on France's north coast, Annie faced her next obstacle. Bureaucracy! That's what I was wondering. Customs confiscated her bike and money while the French newspapers wrote about how ugly she was. Wow. So classy, France. Your language is impossible and you're salty. Come on. After everything was finally sorted out, she set out from Paris to Marseille. And I actually looked up how to say that, so I'm good. Take that, French. Well, it's really interesting because Marseille and Versailles are spelled super similarly, but they're pronounced different. Goddamn French. Annie paid her way uh, riding through France by selling advertisements, advertisement space on her bike and clothing. She would also give lectures about her trip, embellishing the story with tales of near-death experiences and accidents. Though she played up the drama of her travels, she did encounter hardships. She suffered an injury to her foot, which required her to prop up her injured foot onto the handlebars as she rode. Which, like, made me think a little bit of Virginia Hall when she's, like, riding on the handlebars, except she's, like, pedaling with one leg and has the other one propped up. Now, Annie was a savvy traveler. The bet didn't specify how many miles she had to bike. She just had to get around the world. So she hopped a ship from France to East Asia. Remember, it's about working smarter, not harder. She did stop in Egypt, Sri Lanka, and Singapore before riding through China. So she would, like, stop at different countries along the way, do a day trip, hop back on the ship, and go to the next country. Yeah. Because... That's smart. That's super smart. It is! By March, she was in Japan. She took a ship from from Japan to San Francisco on March 23rd. Annie then spent the next six months biking across the United States, witnessing the majesty of the Southwest, the Grand Great Plains, and the bean fields of the Midwest. Bean fields? (laughs) Yeah. Now it's corn. Bean and corn? Well, I guess depending on what part of the Midwest you're in. Yeah, that would have been a great time to be in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been like spring, summer here. Yeah. I mean, not in Minnesota, but I think she just dodged that whole area in general because she's smart. Lower Midwest. Yes. At one point, she was almost killed by a runaway horse and wagon and and broke her wrist when she crashed into a bunch of pigs. (gasps) Hello, Midwest. (laughs) That's like the most Midwestern way to get hurt. The only way she could, it could have been more Midwest if she crashed into a cow. (laughs) Fuck. Well, (laughs) (laughs) fucking A, love it. So while traveling across America, Annie would engage in local bike races to and prove to be an accomplished cyclist despite no shit. despite having never ridden until shortly before she had started on her journey. But, yeah, at but this when point, you're doing that every day, she knows what the fuck she's yeah. doing now. Does she still not have brakes? I don't think she does. I don't know. Maybe she picked up a new bi- bike in France. That's how she was able to do it so fast. She didn't yeah. have the option to stop. <laughs> Finally, on September 12th, 1895, Annie arrived in Chicago, completing her journey in just under 15 months. So because she had already made it to Chicago and doubled back, Chicago was the ending point. She collected her $10,000 prize and went back to Boston. Annie later wrote of her exploits in the New York world, and the headline read, The Most Extraordinary Journey Ever Undertaken! 
by a woman. I was going to say there was a by a woman, wasn't there? Like, here's the thing. The fact that she's a woman doing this is incredible and great and blah, blah, blah. Why do you got to qualify it, though? Right. Come on, New York world. Get your shit together. Had a men done it by then? Probably not. I think it might have by a dude because she was the first woman and it never said the first person. So, okay. Maybe I'm being too harsh on the New York world. Kelly's giving me the skeptical look. Like, maybe I should be harsher? No. I'm just saying maybe maybe I'm going to Google this. (laughs) (laughs) So, what did Annie do on her journey? It's difficult to say. As I mentioned during lectures, she would exaggerate her exploits or flat out make shit up. She claimed yeah, totally to be she claimed to be a medical student, the niece of a U.S. senator, and an orphan on different occasions. He did it on a penny farthing. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. That's actually really fucking bad. <laughs> Who was it? Uh, his name was Thomas Stevens. So Thomas Stevens was the first person to ride a bike around the world, and um, he did it on a penny farthing. Yeah, it took him two years and. Eight months. Two years and eight months. So she did it in 15 months. He was on a fucking penny farthing. No, no, no. I'm not discrediting how difficult it was, but I'm like, those are Oh, yeah, he did it in like 30 months. It took him twice the amount of time to do it. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe he actually biked the entire thing. Half that time was him trying to get on and off that ridiculous (laughs) goddamn bike. Who came up with that design? So, yeah, that was 1884 to 1886 when he did it. Sorry, side note, moving on. I had to know, like, my skepticism was, do we know for sure that she wasn't the first person? So, no, she wasn't. This we is know the quality sure, no. information we try to provide to you on whining about her street. No one can say we don't try. <laughs> Anyone try. can say we don't do this well, but we no one can we say try. we don't try. <laughs> she also claimed that she hunted tigers, met with royalty, and wound up in jail. So she's saying that she's all these insane things. And still made things. it around the world in 15 months. Yeah. She could have done it in, like, two weeks had she, like, just kept biking the whole time. Ooh, that ship, man. Ships are slow. Right? What we do know is that she did, in fact, ride her bike around the world and that she was the first woman to do so. So regardless of all the extra exploits, this was an incredible feat. Well, and I mean, some people would argue she didn't actually ride her bike around the world because she took a ship part of the way. She would just get on and off of it. Yeah, but... But it's still, I mean, it's still incredible. I was going to say, it's not like she, like, biked from Boston to a suburb outside of Boston and then sailed around the world and was like, I'm back. She definitely biked at least across the entire U.S. and China and France and then sporadically in other countries. I was going to say, just biking from Boston to Chicago. I'm like, okay, you're a badass. I'm done. What, Almost a thousand miles. (sighs) Wine makes me sleepy, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm getting exhausted just thinking about it. Seriously, though. After his her historic bike trip, Annie leveraged her celebrity by selling photos, autographs, and other souvenirs. She continued to write of her adventures and moved her with her family to New York City. She's and like, remember Fuck this tenement. Shout out to Simon. I don't know what kind of husband he was, but he did stay home and take care of their three children. While she's doing this shit. I mean, if you're expecting your wife to come home with (laughs) $10,000. You fucking better step up, sir. In one article, Annie described herself as the new woman. This was a feminist idea that arose in the late 19th century, describing a woman seeking radical change and who pushed the envelope of what it meant to be a woman in a male-dominated society. 
So just being like a badass lady. Annie wrote, quote, I am a journalist and a new woman. If that term means that I believe I can do anything that any man can do. Legacy. I like that. Yeah. Yep. So legacy. Unfortunately, Annie would never know the same level of fame that her historic bike ride brought her. She died in relative obscurity in 1947. kind of happens. It's like her 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. And then you just die her 15 off. months of fame. <laughs> However, the world has not forgotten her. In 2007, her great-nephew, Peter, who I mentioned before, published quote, uh, published a book called Around the World on Two Wheels, Annie Londonderry's Extraordinary Ride. A bicycle-themed performance called Spin featured a song called The Ballad of Annie Londonderry uh, was written about her. Uh, there was also a documentary called the new woman annie londonderry kopchovsky which premiered in february of 2013 and won the award for best documentary at the dc independent film festival oh. annie truly embodied the spirit of the new woman she was a bike riding pants wearing independent self-sufficient badass so remember everyone be a rebel ride a bike yeah. Because, like, let's remember, like, riding a bike doesn't seem like a big deal to us today. But at the time, bike riding was, like, fucking deviant. I need like, to get a new bike and actually deviant. go bike riding. We should go. I have bike pass all by my house, and we need to go on a bike ride. I do have a car that can fit my bike now. We should do this. We should. Okay. Okay. Moving on. We will tell you later this summer about how Kelly and I went on a bike ride and in town. died. <laughs> no. God. I haven't biked in so long. It's been like years. Okay. So when Jared's mom got married, they're, they're really into like physical fitness and going on excursions and stuff. So we went to um, a town about 45 miles or 45 minutes out from where we live. And one of the things that they had planned the day before the wedding was a bike trip. So we rode on the bike trails. We rented bikes yeah. and did the whole thing. And that was the first time I'd ridden a bike since college. And I was terrified. But it was so much fun. Like, I know I know how to ride a bike still. Oh, yeah. But I don't know where my stamina is. Right. Actually, so we've been getting a ton of rain in Minnesota. And the bike passed by my house. Yeah, like they're all flooded. They're, they're flooded because they go along the river. And there's actually a bridge that goes over the river. And the water is almost touching the underside of yeah, the bridge. There's... We have a road bridge that crosses the river at some point, too, and my husband usually walks under that bridge to go to work. He couldn't have done that today. That bridge is underwater. He had to swim. <laughs> or, you know, he just doesn't go to work on Saturdays. I'm sorry. I can't make it into work. Uh, the, the path well, he I walk He would have just had to cross, you know, the street like a normal person. Nope. Nope. Too much. Too yeah. much. I can't. can't I can't. I'm afraid, <laughs> of, I'm afraid of roads. I can't do it. Okay. So, Kelly's favorite time of the episode... <laughs> don't give me that fucking look i wasn't look. trying to i was trying to think of something do you want me to go first yeah because i have to sneeze so uh i'm really excited i'm really thankful so last weekend me and my friend caleb who co-hosts shit showtime the movie podcast that i have we celebrated our one-year anniversary of doing the podcast and a Ooh. local a local theater was showing jurassic park so he dressed up as john hammond and i dressed and up forgot to remind me so i could go with them i I completely spaced it because it turned into kind of a shit showtime thing. Weren't you busy on Saturday? Last Saturday? I don't remember. Probably. I don't remember. 
Okay. Well, so he dressed up as John Hammond and I dressed up as Sam Neill and we walked into the theater and people literally applauded and it was like... I mean, he did a really good John Hammond. I'm not that you were a bad Sam Neill, but he did a really good John Hammond. His John Hammond cosplay, like we were watching the movie and I was like, I'm watching Caleb on the screen. Like this dude looks exactly like fucking John Hammond. And I couldn't find my khaki shorts, so I had to wear jeans instead of khakis. Otherwise, my costume was pretty on point. Um, just gone to goodwill right well it was the day of and i was like i've got the shorts i don't need to make sure i have the shorts oh god i don't have the shorts but it was it was a ton of fun you know caleb and i we've been friends for over a decade and watching movies has been a big part of that friendship so for us to be able to celebrate our friendship and this podcast we're doing together was really great and i can't wait to celebrate our one year (laughs) which i mean is a ways (laughs) off but but it was yeah. fun. I loved it. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I haven't thought of anything yet. Um, I'm thankful to be working from home. There you go. That's right. You started I just, working I just from got, home well, now. Technically, I started like last, like a week ago, Thursday. But then I had Friday off. And then, you know, life. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this week was my first like full week working from home. Except obviously, you know, for us here in the U.S., most of us had Thursday off. So Fourth of July. Full, full week. But it's been good. Like, I think the dogs really like it. And especially with Atari getting older, I'm glad to be able to be home, spend time with them. That's right. Kelly is the biggest video game nerd, and I love her. So her dogs are named Atari, Commodore, and Navi. Yep. They're so cute. Little, little nerdy grumble. Yeah, I love my grumble. You might hear them sometimes in the background of our episodes barking, fucking patriarchy. Yep. They're all women. That's what they're doing. Yeah, they're em- they're empowered women, empowering women. And Jurassic Park is full of empowered women because all the dinosaurs are ladies. High five! All right. Uh, I think that's it for this episode. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. We're so happy you're here. Please check us out on Facebook at Whining About Herstory and Instagram, Pod. We post tons of cool stuff. Like us, follow us. We love you. We're also on Twitter now at 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 um, WHA underscore pod. WAH. Whatever. <laughs> W-A-H underscore pod. Um, our website is whiningabouthistory.com and our email is whiningabouthistory at gmail.com. If you have some people you want us to feature in our Say Their Name segment, email them to us. If you want to tell us about the empowered women in your life, email us. You want to talk about yourself? Email us. If you want to tell me how you started a stamp collection of like strong women, dude, fucking email us yesterday. Get right? on that. Honestly, if you just are bored and want to talk to someone, email us. We're probably also bored. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We anyway, Either way, we would love to hear from you um, in, in any form, whether it's Facebook, email, you know, Twitter, Instagram. And then rate and review us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps us out. Five stars. So this has been Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.